This podcast is presented to you by High Desert Word Center in Barstow, California. For more information, visit hdwc.org. This morning, that's actually God's really set this up because we're talking about the fear of the Lord part four. But the main focus today is on the presence of God. And I, I, the presence of God is already in this place. I, and a lot of you, a lot of you know that. A lot of you can sense that. But, uh, I believe really that God is gonna speak to you today. And God's gonna do something in your life if you'll give Him a few minutes of your time. Uh, if you need an outline, raise your hand. The ushers will get you one. But the title today is The Fear of the Lord, Part 4. And we're gonna be talking about the presence of God. Now, if you're not, you know, if you're just a casual part-time Christian, then that, this probably doesn't sound that exciting and not something that you're too interested in. But if you are looking to go to a deeper level with the Lord, if you're not satisfied with where you are and you want a deeper relationship with God, then this could be the very thing to change your life forever this morning. And, uh, and I'm being very serious about that. What we're going to do, and I don't think this will be a very long message, uh, but there's three guys that I want to look at in the Old Testament, three people that had the fear of the Lord, but they also had the presence of God. And, and, and I want to break this down for you and quickly study their three lives. And I believe that uh, that that God's going to do something in our midst today uh, if you'll stay hooked up with him. Amen. So what I want to do is pray and then I want to get into the word of God here and look at three different guys. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord, so much uh, for for a church to come and worship you in, Lord. And we realize the church isn't the building, Lord. It's the people that are in it. Lord, we're your body. We are your church. But, God, we thank you that we have a place where we can gather together and be surrounded uh, by people that love us, Lord, people that love you, and that we can learn your word together. And, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that as we open the Bible today, Lord, that you'll speak to us, Lord. You'll tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, Lord, and that you'll change us for your glory. Bring us up to that higher level, Father, in the name of Jesus. Everybody said? Amen. So the first guy I want to look at is this. Number one, I want to look at Moses for a couple of minutes here. I want to look at Moses. And uh, if you're not super familiar with Moses, and we've talked about him quite a bit lately, but I realize not everybody, you know, uh, has a full understanding there. But Moses, uh, when, when he's a baby... You know, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he gives a decree that any uh, any Hebrew male child, any Jewish male baby has to be killed because the Egyptians were afraid that the, the, the Israelites were multiplying, they're reproducing. They're like, pretty soon there's going to be more of them than us. And so the only way to stop that is to kill, is to kill the males. And so they start killing, sadly, all of the male children, the, the babies. But Moses, if you know the story, his mom, she comes up with a plan and makes a little basket uh, that would float and sends him up the river, right? And so the Pharaoh's daughter... The king's daughter sees this little little basket and 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 picks him up and all this like this must be a a Hebrew baby that, that that they're trying to save and she adopts him and and here we have a Jewish child being raised in the palace of the king that was trying to kill all of them and it's a remarkable story but uh, but later on Moses decides you know what this isn't for me I I, the, I I need to be true to who I am I need to be true to my people and I need to be true to my God and he leaves it all behind he leaves the wealth the luxury, the palace, and he goes out there and suffers with the people of God. And it's incredible. And so, you know, God delivers them through ten plagues and through the Red Sea. But Moses, out of all of it, his main desire in life was to be in the presence of God. Because he had this experience, right, the burning bush experience, where God appears in the form of a burning bush. And this bush is on fire, but at the same time, it's not being consumed. It's on fire, but it's not burning. And God tells Moses, he says, hey, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground right now. You don't come into my presence like that. And he takes off his shoes and he bows before the Lord and God tells him what his call is. And it, and it's incredible. And, and Moses, he had a respect for the presence of God. And if you fear the Lord, if you, if you really love God, you want to be in his presence every day. And you're saying, well, I thought God was everywhere. We're always in his presence. Well, there's two types of the presence of God. There's his omnipresence, 
omnis. That means he's, of course, God's everywhere all the time. We get that. God is everywhere. There's his omnipresence, but there's also his manifest presence where God literally shows up in your midst and things change. If, if you're sick, you get healed. If you're depressed, you get delivered. God will absolutely, when his manifest presence shows up, people know. People know. And some people choose to let that change their life. And I've, you know, people have said, you can't be in the presence of God and leave the same. Well, Kenny Gatlin corrected my theology on that a couple months ago. And he was like, that's not true. I know lots of people that have been in the presence of God and they choose to continue living their same way and not change. And I'm like, you know what? That's right. I know a lot of people. We could be in the exact same service and one we're all in the presence of God. Somebody over here say, you know what, Lord, this is the day I changed my life. And somebody over here say, yeah, I felt that, but I'm still going to go out and do the same thing I've always done. I'm not changing. And so, yeah, you could be in the presence of God and and and, and not change your life forever. But wouldn't that be sad? Wouldn't that be sad to be in the present? God Almighty shows up in the manifested form and you don't let it do anything to your life. You choose that. No, I'm I don't want that. I'm I'm content. I'm I'm okay with how I am. That's sad because God wants to bring you up to a higher level. But let's open our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And here we have it, uh, the, the, the people uh, of Israel, the children of Israel, they've been delivered. They're out there wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And what, what was their great sin? Their sin was complaining. They're like, well, I don't think that's a sin. Sin, or excuse me, complaining is a sin. It's a sin. Now, I'm not just talking about a you know, little complaint. I'm talking about you make it your lifestyle. That's a dangerous trap to fall in because after a while, man, you'll don't, you're not just complaining about your cheeseburger. You're complaining about your coworkers. You're not complaining about your coworkers. You're complaining about your family. And then you start complaining about God himself. God, if I was you, I'd do things different. You may not, you may not say those words, but that's what you're saying. Well, you didn't do what I wanted. I know more than you do. I could have done it better. Now, you may not be saying those words, but your heart is saying that eventually. And that's a, that is a scary place to be in. You don't know more than God, and you couldn't have done a better job than he did. But Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to look here at verses 1 through 3. Now, they're out there in the wilderness. And the Lord said to Moses, get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them, I'll give this land to your descendants. Verse 2. And I will send an angel before you. I'll send an angel before you. To drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and any other ites that are in there. All right? Verse 3 says, Go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you. He's like, I'm going to send an angel, but I'm not going to go. What? I'm not going to travel among you, for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. What? Can you imagine that? God's saying, listen, I love you. I made a promise. Okay, I want you to get to the promised land, but I'm not going to, I'm not going in the midst of you. You are, I, I can't take it. You all are spoiled little brats that complain all the time. I'd probably get mad and just destroy all of you. Have you ever been on a road trip with little kids? I have. I've driven, yeah, I've driven 2,000 miles in one direction with a carload of kids. And after a while, I said, I'm going to send an angel, but I'm not going, kids. I would surely destroy you if I, but, uh, you know, but that's how God, he had it up to here with their attitude. And can you imagine God saying that? I made a promise. I'll send an angel before you, but I'm not going because you all are, I've about had it with you guys. You and your complaining, I would get mad and I'd probably destroy every single one of you. Whoa, my gosh. I wouldn't want God to say, and so you'd think to the, to the, to the carnal Christian, to somebody that's just, you know, in this for what God can do, they'd be like, all right, whatevs, let's go, man, let's do it. I want my milk and honey, let's get going. But Moses doesn't say that. Look down here at verse 15. Verse 15, then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. So in other words, he's saying, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. If you don't personally take us, I'm not going. Don't make us. I don't want to go if you don't go. Do you see that? 
Moses wanted God to be in the midst. Moses wanted the presence of the Lord. He didn't want to do anything without God. He said, if you don't go, don't send us because I don't want to go if you're not going. Verse 16. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. That's now that's a statement right there. Moses said the, the, the different now. Now you may think, well, we're all the same and, and we are all the same as far as the natural sense go. Everybody, you know, we're equal. We're people. But as a child of God, you are set apart from the you're not like everybody else. You know, Jesus in John 17 put it this way. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. I live here, but this is a. This isn't the final destination for me. I'm, I'm, I'm here, but this isn't who I identify with. And so Moses says, hey, the only thing that sets us apart from everybody else is your presence. We are. I, I don't want to go. Leave us here. Let, let us rot in the wilderness. But I don't want to go even to this land of blessing. I don't even want to go to the promised land if you don't personally take us there. Now, not everybody would say that. Plenty of people would say all right, God, you know, you feel that way, but can we go now? Can, can we get going? We want the stuff. Can, we, we need to get into the promised land. But do you see the difference between Moses and everybody else? He said, I don't want that stuff if you're not going to be taking us there. So Moses was not willing to move. He wasn't willing to make any decisions in his life without the presence of God. Now, my question is, how many of us Make our decisions and our choices in life just on a whim without without even being in the presence of God. You think about that? Oh, this looks like a good offer. Sold. Deal. I'll take it. Wait a minute. You didn't even include God on that. You know, hey, oh, my gosh. Wow, this is a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. Here we go. And I'm and you're and you're you know, you may not realize that it's a lot better to make. an hour with the presence of God than $50 an hour without the presence of God. Now, again, to the to the lukewarmer, they don't think that's possible. But believe me, it's possible. I'd rather give away all that stuff if I had God's presence with me than to have all everything that this world has to offer. I'd say, keep it, man. Keep it. But here it is. Moses, he had this problem in his life. He truly wanted to know God. But he was surrounded by people that just wanted to know what God could do for them. He wanted to know God. He wanted to know God for who he is. But he was surrounded by people that they didn't care to know God. They just wanted to know what God could do for him. You know what I mean? It's like you get a new job and, and you're, you're happy and blessed. But all you care. And, and let me say this in context, of course. We're there for the, you know, you're there for the money and the benefits, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the truth. But, but uh, can you imagine just, they're trying to tell you, here's what we need from you, and you're like, no, nah, forget that. What are the benefits? Okay, it says here that I've got, oh, dental, that's nice. Hey, there we go. Oh, paid time up. Very good, very good. Okay, we're going to need you to clock in. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, and and all, you don't care about anything they're saying, but it's nice to have an employee that not only is blessed and, and, and happy about the benefits you offer, but they also get the heart of what it is you're doing. And if you're a business owner, I know Chuck and some of you guys, yeah, isn't it nice to have somebody that they're not just there for the pay, but they actually, they care about the mission. They care about the goal and the purpose. And that person, they'll do a better job. They'll do a whole lot more for you because they actually care about what it is you care about. And there's a lot of Christians, they don't care about what God cares about. They don't love what God loves and hate what God hates. They just want to know what God can do. And and so look at verse 13 here. We're, in, we're here in chapter 33, verse 13. And Moses says this. He says, if it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways. So I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. And so Moses says, I want to know your ways. Let me know you better. Let me get closer to you. I want to know the ways of God. And so let me ask this. Moses delivered the people from Egypt. Where was it he wanted to take them? 
Well, actually, no, that's not the first destination he wanted to take. The trick question. That was the ultimate goal. But if you look at chapter five of Exodus, he says, Pharaoh, I'm here and I and let my let, let my people go so we can go worship our God in the wilderness. Let us go worship our God in the desert. And so the ultimate goal was to get to the promised land. But the first thing he says is, let us go so we can go worship our God in the wilderness. And so what he was trying to do, what Moses ultimate goal was, check it out. I'm hoping I'm not going too deep here, but but check it out. His ultimate goal was to get them introduced and to know the promiser before they sought all the promises. Because if you just get introduced to all the promises before you know the promiser, then you're you're not never be a person that fears the Lord. You'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied. And you'll have a bad attitude and complain all the time. But if you get to know God himself, if you're like Moses and say, Lord, I just want to know your ways. I want to know you. I want to get to know you better. I want to know everything I can about you. If that's your attitude, if you're not, if you're, if you're wanting to get out so you can worship God and know Him better, then yeah, the promised land is going to come, but that shouldn't be your first stop. And so Moses said, let my people go so we can go worship our God in the wilderness and sacrifice to Him. That was the first definition. So there's a lot of people that are seeking God, but it's for all the wrong reasons. Moses wanted to know God's ways. The people of Israel just wanted to know, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? And so if you study it, the Israelites, they respected and reverenced God so long as he was doing what they wanted him to do. Like a lot of people I know, yeah, man, I respect God as long as he's doing what I want. As long as he's, as long as he's affirming my choices, as long as he's given me the things that I pray for, I'll, yeah, man, I'm his. But that's not how you fear the Lord. So I'm going to show you a very profound verse in Psalm 103, verse 7. Psalm 103, 7. Are we awake today? Amen. Psalm 103, verse 7. And so, Moses, more than anything else, he, he had tasted of money. He had tasted of pleasure and luxury and, and the finer things of life. He knew, what, he knew what all that tasted like, but that's not what he wanted. He said, God, I want to know your ways. And so Psalm 103 and verse 7, here's something that David wrote, but it's in the new, I'm going to read this in the New King James. It says, he made known his ways to Moses. And his acts to the children of Israel. So what does that mean? God made known his ways. God revealed himself to Moses. And the children of Israel, they knew God by what he could do for them. And so Moses knew God by his ways and Israel only knew him by his acts. Do you see that? Do you see that? I don't know if that hits you like it hits me. Moses knew God. By his ways, because he knew God. He he knew God. The children of Israel, they didn't know God. They knew his ways. Or excuse me, they knew his acts. They knew his power. Who's the God you serve? Oh, yeah, he's the one that part, you know, he, he does stuff for us. Parts the Red Sea, gives us our food. Gives, I mean, and all that's true. But Moses, he would have answered much different. He said, it's Jehovah. This is my God. This is this is are delivered. This is my God. Moses would have had a much different aspect on that. And so when we're looking at Moses, that, that, that verse is, that just hits me between the eyes. Moses knew God by his ways, but Israel only knew him by his acts. How is it that you know God? Do you know him for the things that he does for you? Or do you know God? And a lot of times I know people are like, well, what would Jesus do? That's a great question. But if you're that close with God, you don't have to sit there beating your head against the wall wondering, what would Jesus do? You pretty much know. Would Jesus take this money? Would Jesus, you know, look at this person? Would Jesus say this to these people? I don't know. Well, come on. If you know Jesus that well, you pretty much don't have to sit there and, and think of that all the time. What would he do? I just, I, what would he do? I really don't know. You do know. 
if you're that close with Jesus, if you're that close with God, you pretty much, and Moses was at that place. He knew. He knew God. He knew what God's answer would be to so many things. He knew what the word of the Lord said. And for us, that's how I want to be in my life. And I'm, I'll bet there's a large percentage in this room that that's how you want to be. You want to know God by his ways. You want to know God. You don't just want to know about God or the things that God can do for you. You want to know God. The second guy I'm going to look at is Abraham. Number two, I'm going to look at Abraham. Now, Abraham is obviously very significant, but Abraham was actually called the friend of God. The book of Isaiah says that and the book of James says that, that that Abraham was literally referred to as the friend of God. Now, I'm glad to be a son of God, which we are. There's a lot of things in our relationship with God. We're his children. Hallelujah. We're, we're his servants. Hallelujah. But listen to me. It's also nice to be a friend of God. And why was he a friend? Because he feared the Lord. But let me show you here in Psalm 25. Let's flip back to Psalm 25. Who in here would like to be a friend of God? A friend. Now, I, I mean, some people, they're an acquaintance, but there's a big difference between an acquaintance and a friend. You know, like, oh, I know that guy. I've seen him around. I've seen him before. There's a lot of people I'm acquainted with in Barstow. Like, I've seen them. I, I see them at different events and stuff, but they're not my friend. I'm sure I could be their friend, but I don't know them that well. But look at this. Psalm 25 and verse 14. I'm going to look at this in three different translations. First of all, the NLT. But it says, the Lord is a friend to those who fear him. Hallelujah. The Lord is a friend to those who fear him. He teaches them his covenant. That's incredible. Let's take it a step further. I want to look at this in the King James. It says this. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. The secret of the Lord. Is with those who fear him. So what are we saying here? That the Lord has secrets? Yeah. The Lord has secrets. But he doesn't just tell them to everybody. It's with those who fear him. And do you know, I mean, I know people that, you know, think of, I think of Brother Hagen and, and different people like, see, like they just know God at such a deep level and they get these revelations and all this stuff. Like, how, what? They, What's going on here? Well, I mean, come on. They fear the Lord. God's given them secrets. God's given them revelations. God's telling them things that he's not telling you. That he's not telling, that, that he's not telling everybody else. Because the Lord does have secrets. But he doesn't just tell them to everybody. They belong to those who fear him. And again, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, fear of the Lord does not mean being scared of God. It means reverencing and submitting to God. It's a Hebrew word, yirah, which means reverence, respect, and submission. So the fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're scared of God. It means you respect Him and reverence Him more than anybody else. His opinion matters than everybody else's opinion matters. And if everybody else gets mad at you, but God's happy with you, you can live with that and you're okay. That's the fear of the Lord. Let's look at this Psalm 25, 14 in the Passion Translation. It says, there's a private place reserved for the lovers of God where they sit near him and receive the revelation secrets of his promises. I love that. Can you imagine you're sitting near God? You're in the presence of God. You're sitting near God and he's revealing uh, things to you. He's giving you the revelation secrets of his promises. That's a whole other level of relationship. Because in your life and in my life, again, we've got lots of people around us. There's people that we don't even know. There's people that are acquaintances. There's people that are our friends. There's people that are our family then if you're blessed and, and whatnot, you, then you have someone that's closer to you than anybody else. You have a spouse. You have a husband if you're a female. You have a wife if you're a male. And, and, and because of that, 
They, know, they, they should be closer to you than to know things about you that nobody else knows. They're closer to you than, than your friends, than your family, than your acquaintances. Now, does anybody in here have any secrets? Now, a lot of times people, they think of the negative. I'm not talking about bad secrets. I'm talking about good secrets. There's good secrets, right? Everyone gets scared when you say, do you have any secrets? I'm not hiding nothing, I swear. Oh, honest. No, we're not talking about bad. But there's good secrets too, right? And so... There's good secrets you have. And do you just tell those to anybody and everybody? Oh, I better get online and just, I need to tweet this now, man. Everybody's going to know my secret. And there are, there are knuckleheads like that. But at the same time, you know, if you've got much of a brain, you don't just tell everybody your secrets. Those are just for the very closest to you. God has secrets that he's not just out telling everybody. They're reserved for those that fear him, for those that are the very closest to him. Now, Abraham knew God in a way that a whole lot of people don't know him. And let me say this. This is on your outline. When you are so close to God because of your reverence for him, he will reveal his secrets to you. Some people, I never hear anything from God. Really? That's strange. I mean, you should. No, I mean, I, I again, I've said it. I've never heard like the audible, physical voice of God in my physical ears. Some people have, and that's fine. I haven't. But I've definitely heard the voice of God on a very regular basis. He speaks to your heart. God will speak to your heart, man. And and if you never hear from God, that's really strange. You may, you may think that we're weird for hearing God, but we think you're weird for not hearing Him. That's weird. You never hear from God? That's really, that's strange. That's weird. But, but if you're close to God, you hear from him all the time. So Abraham, you know, to catch you up on his story, his whole life, he wanted a son. Abraham, let me just shoot straight. And Abraham was very, very rich. He would probably be a billionaire by today's standards. He was very, very wealthy. He had a lot of money, silver and gold. He had a lot of real estate. He had a lot of cattle. He had, a, I mean, just a lot of possessions. But he didn't really care about any of it. What he wanted was a son. He said, what good is all this stuff if I don't have a, a son to leave it to? He didn't, he didn't have any kids. And so his prayer was, God, I just want a son. And as you know, he eventually had a son when he was 100 years old. And his wife was 90 years old. They had a son. They named him Isaac. And so Isaac... Can you imagine, you've waited a hundred years for something, don't you think you would treasure that? You would value that? That would be, I mean, your whole world. And that's what this boy was to his father. Isaac meant everything to Abraham. It was his pride and joy. Isaac was everything. But let me show you something in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. I mean, you can imagine how special this son was to this dad. And, of course, all of us, our sons and our daughters, are special to us. But I didn't have to wait a 100 years for them. <laughs> I love them, absolutely. But, but look at this. Genesis 22. And so God is, he's going to test Abraham's obedience. Now, when you fear the Lord, you obey the Lord, right? Whether you understand why. Whether you agree with God's decision, whether you, it doesn't matter. When you reverence God that much, you do what he says. And so Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, who you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Oh, my gosh. To me, this is one of the craziest stories in all of Scripture, to be honest. This is, the, I, oh, my gosh. He waited a hundred years. God finally gives him the boy. And then God, a short time later, says, okay, I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give him up. He's not going to be yours anymore. I want you to sacrifice him on an altar on a mountain. Whoa, <laughs> I can't even comprehend this. But look at look at this next verse. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled 
his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about it. And so Abraham doesn't even delay. It says he got up early the very next day and headed out for that mountain. There's very few people. And and just so you know, God is never going to tell any of you (laughs) to sacrifice your children in this way. It never, never would happen. But out of this whole story, I'm like, how could Abraham even like entertain this thought? I, I don't get it. But the New Testament gives a key. Uh, I don't know if I've got this on the screen. Write this down because I don't want to turn all the way there. Write this down so you can check me out on it. Make sure I'm not lying to you. But Hebrews 11:19, it says, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. So I think in Abraham's mind, he was thinking, okay, I'm going to go sacrifice my son because that's what God said. But I'm sure God will raise him back again. That's what he was thinking. But no, that's not actually what God was thinking. God still had another plan. And again, this story is just like, what? It's one of the craziest stories. So look down here at verses 11 through 14, because Abraham was literally going to go through with this. Verse 11, it says, at that moment, right when he was getting ready to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord called him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. But verse 14, this is a huge verse. Because you can study it. You look at the first 22 chapters of Genesis. This is the very first place where that name of God is used. Jehovah Jireh. He didn't tell anybody else about this part of him. He didn't tell anybody else this name. But right when Abraham goes to the ultimate level of obedience, up out of his spirit comes Jehovah Jireh. God just revealed to him a secret. God just revealed to Abraham an aspect about him that he had never told anybody else before. The secret of the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. Psalm 25. Here we are in this moment that seems like, surely this guy's not going to do this. And Abraham, he reasoned that God would probably just bring him back, but he was going to do it. And because he fears God so much, because he is so wrapped up in God, God reveals an aspect of his nature to him that he had never revealed to anybody before. Isn't that incredible? The secret of the Lord belongs to those who fear him. Or as the the Passion Translation said it, there's a private place reserved for the lovers of God where they sit near him and receive the revelation secrets of his promises. I want to live in that place. I'm not content with just being an outsider. I don't want to be a spectator. I, I don't want to be somebody that just knows about God. I want to know God. But you're not allowed to know God on that level if you don't reverence him. If you don't even care. I mean, God's not going to invite you into his inner circle. God's not going to make you, you know, you're not going to be like that with God if you don't even respect him and reverence him. You know, and it saddens me in our in our modern day and age, the lack of even Christians. They don't really I mean, I I don't get I'm not you know, I wouldn't make fun of anybody, but but I don't see how you could be even in a praise and worship. we're, We're singing worship and people are sitting down. How do you do that? I'm not making, I'm not making fun of it. I don't get it. How do you, how can you do that? How can you, when the word of God is being read, you're playing on your cell phone. How? How? When somebody's given a testimony of what God did for them, when someone's preaching God's holy word, 
And, and you're, you're not, you're, you're looking through doing your shopping list. You're playing on your phone. You're texting your friend. I, I'm not, I mean, I don't know what you do on your phones. I'm, I'm up here. I, I don't know. But that is mind blowing that you could be in the present and have such a lax attitude about it, such a nonchalant, eh, that you don't, you can't even do what? That is insanity. And then you expect God to, you know, Hey, I'm on God's top five. Look at this. No. <laughs> nah. You, you don't get close to God. You can't be his friend if you don't reverence and respect him more than you do anybody or anything else. You'll obey who you fear. You'll obey who you respect. You'll obey who you reverence. Whether that be your money or your friends or your boss or if it's God, you, it's easy to tell who somebody really fears because they obey them. It's their Lord. And Jesus is not your Lord until you live in obedience to Him. We looked at that in our, our class earlier this morning that Jesus said to this group of people in Luke, He said, Why do you keep calling me Lord, but you don't do what I say? I'm not your Lord. You're, I'm sure you love me and like me, but Please stop calling me Lord if you don't obey me. Like that's, my gosh. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Quit calling me Lord. Whoa. That would, I mean, that would almost be offensive, but, but he said, you don't do what I say. I'm not your Lord. And so I'm challenging us like Abraham to obey God when God says, you know, some people say that, man, God's been dealing with me about this for six months, man. He's had to deal with you for six months and you still haven't obeyed. Man, God's been, he's been working with me on for years now. And you, and you're bragging about that? You're bragging about your lack of the fear of God. If God's had to deal with you on it for six months, I mean, you know, I'm not making fun, but like, that's crazy. That's not saying that, you know, that you're tight with God. That's saying that you have an, an obedience issue. But Abraham got up early the next morning. Saddled up his donkey, got a couple of his friends and servants, and got the sun and the wood. The next, early the next morning. Wow. That's someone that fears God. And the third person I want to look at today is this, is David. So we've looked at Moses, Abraham, and now I want to look at David. Now most of the fear of the Lord verses that we have in the Bible, most of them are in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Now, there is a lot of them. I have not calculated or all of them, but every time I see one, I put the abbreviation FOTL beside it, and I need to count how many that I've come up with. But, but most of the fear of the Lord verses are in the Psalms and Proverbs, and the majority of the Psalms, not all of them, but the majority were written by David, and the majority of the Proverbs were written by his son, Solomon. So David knew what the fear of the Lord was because he had it. Now, we also know that David made some bad mistakes. Who knows that? David did some super bad, 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 bad stuff. But if you're studying First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, there's two prominent kings uh, that this covers mainly. And, 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 and the first one is King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. Before that, God had been their king, and they kept saying, no, we want a person. All the other countries get to have a person be their king. We want one too. Just like, you know, just like your kids say, well, all my friends got this. I want one too. And so God, you know, he's like, fine, I'll give you a person to be your king, but I don't think you're going to like it. And so God anoints Saul, who was a strong, he's very tall man, very strong. They said very handsome. I mean, he picked, if you had, if you had a lineup of people who to be king, Saul was, he's the king. So God chooses him, and Saul starts off good, but he gets very, very arrogant, very prideful, and, and Saul eventually does not become a good king. But Saul and David, they are both kings of Israel, they both made very, very bad mistakes. I think David's mistake almost seems worse than Saul's, but yet in the end, God says, David is a man after my own heart. And God says, Saul, I've rejected you. I've cut you off from the throne today. Basically, you're dead to me. I don't want you anymore. (laughs) Whoa. But why is that? 
Well, we're going to look, we're going to look at, uh, at the difference between the two. So turn over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. And here's the deal. So, so God told Saul, you need to go and you need to wipe out this entire people called the Amalekites. Every single one of them. Don't leave one standing. Get rid of all their stuff. Destroy their whole country. And you're like, man, that sounds terrible. Well, the Amalekites were bad, bad people. They sacrificed babies on altars. They, I mean, they, they had, they had, they had prostitutes just for the sake of having babies that they could catch on fire and burn to their. They were bad people. And they weren't changing. And so God said, we gotta get, you gotta wipe every one of them out. And so Saul's like, hey, done. Let's go. So he takes the army of Israel over there and they wipe a bunch of them out. But then Saul, hey, man, they've got a lot of good stuff that I want. So Saul, Saul keeps a bunch of their possessions that he thinks would be nice. Some of their silver and gold. Like, hey, uh, go out and get the silver and gold. Bring it to me. I'll, I'll keep that for me. And he leaves the king alive out of ever. He leaves the king alive. Well, why did he do that? Back in that day and age, it's obvious. There's no greater trophy than to capture somebody's king and bring him back to your palace and make him your servant. This was the height of arrogance. Saul didn't kill that king because he wanted another trophy so people could say, oh, you're the man. Oh, you got the king of the Amalekites. He's bowing down to you. This was nothing but pure arrogance that he left this king alive and, and kept some of the treasures for himself. And, and God was not happy. He partially obeyed, but he didn't fully obey. And the sad thing is partial obedience is nothing more than disobedience. And so... Here we have it. God sends the prophet to confront the king, Saul. He says, God's rejected you, Saul. This very day, the kingdom has been ripped from your hands. And look at Saul's reply. First Samuel 15, verse 30. Then Saul pleaded again. I know I sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me. So that I may worship the Lord, your God. Whoa. He's like, hey, I get it. I sinned. He didn't even care that he sinned. He didn't even care that God said, I've rejected you. I don't need you anymore. He didn't care that he hurt God. But what he did care about was how he looked. He said, at least let me save face in front of all the people. Do me this favor. Still honor me in front of the people of Israel and amongst the elders. Don't make me look bad. Can you do that, prophet? Wow. And the prophet says, all right, you know, whatever, let's go. He did not care that he hurt God. All he cared about was his image, what he looked like, and saving his reputation and keeping his power. Isn't that sick? He didn't care that he hurt the heart of God. He didn't care that he disobeyed Jehovah, he just cared about, hey, whatever, I just don't want to look bad. Can you still, like, make it look like I'm good? Just at least make it look like I did the right thing in front of everybody? I mean, that's that's messed up. That is sick. But that's the attitude that Saul had. And ultimately, he died a wrong, shameful death on the battlefield, killing himself. It was just a shameful, shameful thing. Shouldn't have died that way. But then David... David, on the other hand, the man after God's own heart, well, if you know what David did, he did something really bad. He's out walking on the palace roof one day, and he sees what he's, a, a beautiful woman bathing. And so he said, man, I want her. And so he summons for her, and they bring this lady, Bathsheba. It's ironic that Bathsheba was taking a bath, but anyway, here we have it. And so he, they bring her to the palace, David, Commits adultery. David gets her pregnant. This is not his wife. And so David's like, man, this is bad. Uh, so her husband, Uriah, is one of David's most faithful 
warriors in battle. A man has served David, would lay down his life for David. So David's like, well, no one can find out I got this girl pregnant. So what? A, so he comes up with a plan. He tells the commanders of the army, we're going to go out to battle. I want everybody, I want, I want my, my front row guys to rush up against the enemy. But at the last minute, draw everybody back except Uriah. So he has Uriah take this letter to the head of the army. Uriah is delivering his own death letter. Doesn't know it. Gives it to the, to the leader of the army. Says, hey, the king told me to give this to you. They go out to battle. Everybody rushes forward and they pull back except Uriah. It's him versus 10,000 and he's left for dead. They kill him. So David could cover his sin. And so the prophet comes and confronts David. And David, he's like, oh my God, <laughs> yes. Guilt, I did it. Oh my God. Oh my God. And, and, and he feels such more. He doesn't he he doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to deny it. He's like, I did it. Oh my gosh. And he feels so terrible. And and he writes about it in Psalm 51. Let's look there really quick. Psalm 51 was written and it I mean it's it's a difficult thing to read. But this is David pouring out his heart before God and having to admit I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And I'm supposed to be the leader of these people. They're supposed to be looking to me. Psalm 51, and David is, I mean, he's not proud of it. He is tore up. Psalm 51 and verse 4. And I, I encourage you to read the entire chapter on your own time, but I'm going to look at two verses today. Psalm 51 and verse 4. David is crying, weeping before God, and he says, Against you, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. He's saying, whatever you see fit to do to me, just do it because it's right. I deserve whatever I get right now. Man, that's the heart to have. When you've done something like that, that should be your heart. Not, well, at least honor me in front of everybody. Don't make me look bad, God. At least let me save face in front of everybody. No, David says, do what you got to do to me. I deserve it, every bit of it. And, and, and notice David saying, I sinned against you. I hurt God. I hurt God. And it, it tore him to pieces. And he said, do what you got to do to me. Punish me. I deserve it. That's not the attitude that most people have. They're like, well, yeah, it happened, my bad, but let me get out of this. I mean, is there any way that I could get through this unscathed? Is there any way I could still get through this and not lose anything? I mean, can we go that route? That's not the attitude of someone who fears the Lord. You don't care. You care you got caught. You do not care that you hurt God. And look at this verse 11. But look at what David says. He says, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Here it comes back to the presence of God once again. Moses said, I don't care, about just, just, if your presence doesn't go, I'm not going. He cared about the presence of God. Abraham, same thing. I, 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 I'll obey you as long as I'm in your presence. I don't care about whatever else. And here's David. He says, take everything away. You realize, again, we're talking about rich people here. Abraham and, and Moses and David, David had a lot to lose. It wasn't like, well, take all I've got. I mean, I don't go much anyway. <laughs> David was the king. He was rich. He had power. He had fame. And notice out of all of this, David didn't say, please don't take the kingdom away. Please let me remain king. Oh, my. Whatever you do, just let me keep my power, please. He didn't say, whatever you do, uh, just don't, don't touch the money. I, I gotta, I, at least leave me two million. I, I, at least leave me a little buffer. He didn't say, I, I, at least, just do whatever you got to do, but, but don't touch this area. He said, whatever you got to do, do it. But please, don't kick me out of your presence. I couldn't live with that. And so, for us, what's the lesson? David said, don't take away your presence. Saul said, don't take away my power. That's the difference. 
David said, don't take away your presence. Saul said, don't take away my power. What's our attitude in life? As long as you're content with living without the presence of God, you will live without the presence of God. But when you get to this place where you're saying, I don't want to, I'm not going anywhere if you don't go. I don't want to do anything if you're not in it. I don't want to have any part of anybody if your presence is not there. And what I, I know that I'm not, this isn't a, 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 a guess. This isn't just a opinion. I know the majority of people that I know, they are content and they've become accustomed to not living in the presence of God. I know it. It's obvious. That you've just become okay without living in the presence of God. I've been there. You've been there. Maybe we are there. I don't know where you're at. But listen to me. Once you've been there, you you don't care about all this other stuff anymore. You don't care about who's talking about you. You don't care about who's saying this or who's... Who cares, man? Who stinking cares? I don't care. All I care about is, I want to know God. I just want to know God. I want to get to that place where God can tell me things that He's not telling everybody else. Where God can, 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 can call me His friend. It's incredible. David said in Psalm 139, the thoughts you have about me outnumber the grains of sand. I looked it up, I think, in one cubic foot, of beach sand, there's something like a hundred billion pieces of sand. And the Bible says that God has more thoughts about you than all the sand in the world. There's no number for that, but all that's telling me is God thinks about you a whole lot. A lot. So, James 4 says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. So I'm just going to lay this out here for your consideration. That your level of closeness to God isn't depending on Him, it's depending on you. How close you are to God, that's your decision. It's not God's decision. God's, I think about you so much, my thoughts are more than the, than the grains of sand in the entire world. There's no number for how much God thinks about you and loves you and wants to be your best friend. But it's not up to Him. He did it, I mean, He laid down His life, He died for you. It's up to you about how close you're going to be to God. And so, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have to. I'm not, I mean, I'm not equal with everybody here. But at the same time, I am not content with living outside of the presence of God. I just, I want to know God, not just what He can do for me. I know what He can do. He can heal cancer. He's, you know, he's done it for me. He, he can restore marriages. He can, he can save children. He can do all these things. I, I, I know his acts. I want to know his ways. I want to know him. So I'm going to ask you to all stand up together this morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information, visit hdwc.org.